Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. My guest today is Pauline Brown, longtime leader in luxury goods and former chairman of LVMH North America. Pauline is renowned around the world for acquiring, building, and leading some of the world's most influential brands. In her groundbreaking book, Aesthetic Intelligence, Pauline shows business people how to harness the power of their own senses to create products and services that delight their customers and build businesses that last. Her book is based on a course that she designed and taught at Harvard Business School. I invited Pauline to be a guest on my show to talk about the business of aesthetics. I wanted to learn about the other AI, as she describes it, and why it's so important when it comes to branding. And finally, I was curious to get Pauline's point of view on why taste matters. Pauline, welcome to Branding Matters. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you have a lot going on, though I appreciate you taking the time to come on here today and talk about the other AI. So let's get right into it. I love how you describe it as that. What is the other AI? Well, so AI, normally when people hear the word AI, they think of artificial intelligence. I wrote a book that came out about a year ago called Aesthetic Intelligence. And I always say aesthetic intelligence is the one thing that humans will continue to do much better than robots. Any other skill that I think of, whether it comes down to things like speed and processing power and, you know, data management and so forth, we we humans are very quickly outrun by technology. Comes to aesthetic intelligence, technology isn't even close. So what is aesthetic intelligence? This other AI, as I call it. So first I'll describe for you or I'll define for you what is aesthetics. Um, Aesthetics, people often think of as beauty. They think of it as um, design. Those elements are certainly part of a good aesthetic experience, but they don't define it. Aesthetics comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which means perception of the senses. So an aesthetic experience is really about elevating the senses. The word aesthetic is actually related to another word we commonly use, an anesthesiologist. Uh, That person's job is to numb your senses. An aesthet elevates the senses. And, And when I talk about senses, I'm talking about all five senses. So that's why I don't reduce great aesthetics to just visual elegance. It's about how things feel. It's about how they smell. It's about how they... Um, In the case of gustatory delight, you know, how they taste. And uh, aesthetic intelligence is really the capability that people have to describe what feels and looks good to them. In a word, aesthetic intelligence is taste. Good taste. Right, right, right. right. It's discrimination. It's the ability to not only know what you like, whether it's in the form of uh, how a textile feels or how a fragrance smells, what you like, but why you like it and how you might recreate it or refine it Um, and making the kind of connections between the sensorial experience and the emotional response. Someone with good taste doesn't have to be an artist or a creative, but they have to be highly discriminating. People who are aesthetically intelligent are highly discriminating as well. To revert back a little bit, you talked about just visual aesthetics. I think that's the common misconception is a lot of people do think when when I first heard about your book and aesthetic intelligence, I really just thought beauty. I thought it was a beauty book. And it was really great to read it and learn and how you talk about all five senses. So what makes someone aesthetically intelligent? Aesthetics doesn't even have to be beautiful. Aesthetics has to be pleasing. So there's a great term, I wrote about it in the book, called Jolie The French people use it often to describe a beautiful woman's face. Jolie in French uh, or in Eng- uh, is the French word for pretty, 
um, you're Canadian, you know this. And um, well, my name is Jolie, so I'm listening, oh, going, "Oh, I love the way you pronounce that." <laughs> well, doesn't have "laid" in it, but "laid" is the French word for ugly. And the, when the two words are put together, um, "jolie laid," pretty ugly, it actually means beautiful because there's something in her face that's a little off. It might be a mole or a, a gap in the teeth or something that makes her that much more beautiful because it makes her interesting. And so I often I say that. great aesthetics is about memorability. It's about distinction. It isn't just about something that is purely harmonious and sort of pleasing in a bland way. And, uh, and, and you can think of other things like um, people who like really spicy food. I mean, that is not pleasant. That's a form of jolie laid. It kind of hurts your tongue, right? And, uh, or if you love to ride on a roller coaster, it's scary as hell. You think you're going to die when you're going down that first drop. And yet there's something so exciting about it. These are aesthetic experiences. And that's why I, I, I do stay away from the word beauty, which is not only subjective, but also a bit tepid related to the kind of things I like to talk about. You know, you talked about beauty being subjective. So are you saying that Jolie Laid or aesthetic intelligence, that's not subjective? Oh, it is very subjective. Yeah. I can tell you this, people often ask me, you know, well, is there such a thing as good taste? Mm -hmm. uh, and I say, no, absolutely not. But there is such a thing as bad taste. So the way I would describe it in very simplistic terms, so let's take music as an example. There are people who love opera. There are people who love punk rock. There are people who love classical music and people who love folk music. I happen to love folk music. I would never go so far as to say just because I love folk music that someone who loves punk music has no taste. They have a taste. It's different than mine. But there are certain sounds that the human condition will find very unpleasant, like a jackhammer. Like you go by a construction site. Nobody ever <laughs> said when they heard that jackhammer, oh, that is music to my ears. Right. So, And you could say the same thing about tastes and smells and so forth. There are certain sensations that are just universally very offensive. Mm -hmm. and Nails good. on a chalkboard. I always yeah, think that's, of that, right? that's not a good thing. No one would find that taste. <laughs> yeah. But the important point is not to create this hierarchy of what is good taste in the form of music or sound or anything. The important point is to understand what feels good to you. And then within that genre, how to continue to refine it. So if I, going back to the music example, love folk music, but there's good folk music and there's bad folk, folk music. There's good voices and there's voices that should not be in front of a microphone. And your ability to decipher and to understand the difference and to understand if you're even a musician, how can I elevate my game? That's where I go with this. And then the other point I, I want to make, people often ask, well, aren't you just either born with this skill or not? You know, does can anyone learn aesthetic intelligence? And I always say, uh, some people are lucky to be born more gifted than others. A great chef like Alain Ducasse was born with, I'm sure, a stronger palate than most of the population. And it led the way for him to create masterful culinary experiences. However, kind of like a muscle, Everyone is born with more capacity than they use and, and, and then they know. And I would say when it comes to developing your aesthetic intelligence, it's a little bit like getting in shape. There are people who are Olympic athletes. The vast majority of people never will be. But 100% of the population, if given the right diet, the right routine, the right discipline, the right time and, and patience, the 100% of the population would be healthier in a month than they were a month ago. And so when it comes to developing one's own aesthetic intelligence, it's a matter of having the right practices, the right attention, the right patience, the right consistency, 
And yes, you too can really, really elevate your abilities. So you can, it can be cultivated then. If you're not born with it, it can be cultivated for sure. No question. No question. I mean, nobody's born as a sommelier, right? That is a cultivated ability. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. So what makes someone aesthetically intelligent? I break it down. I mean, there's a lot of components to it, but I'll break it down very simplistically into four clusters of skills. The first and the most basic is what I call a sensitivity or awareness and attunement. I think in the book, I refer to it as attunement. Are you aware of the different sensorial stimulus that is hitting you at any given moment? There are people, you know, and often they've done these studies on autistic children, for example, who can be highly aware of certain sounds or of how a tag on a t-shirt feels. So you can also be hyper aware. And in general, in society, we try to numb our senses so we can get through the day. But in order, when you want to awaken the senses, the first step is really to get back in your body and to notice the art of noticing, because at any given time, there are so many different sensations that are hitting us than the ones that we're actually consciously processing. So that's sensitivity. Isn't that something you're born with though? Well, as I say, there are people who are born at different levels of sensitivity. But if I said to you, you know, let's say I said, um, what's the first sound that you hear? And maybe the first thing you would hear on a conscious level would be my voice. Or if there's a gardener outside, you might hear that or a window washer. And then I said, okay, now keep listening. What are some other things you hear? And then you really sort of take some time. You, listen, you you quiet everything around you. And maybe you'll hear a bird that would have been you would have been oblivious to. And then maybe you'd even hear like a, a gust of wind or a, uh, if it were a certain season, you'd start to hear, you know, leaves falling off a tree. It's about tuning in. Mm, okay. I go back to, we all have so much more capacity than we use. And when we're trying to open it up, we just have to start to tune in for starters. It doesn't mean once you're highly aware and sensitive that you're done. This to me is just the first step. And you see that often with, uh, let's go back to the the example of the sommelier. Most people who haven't gone to any sort of uh, wine training program, they know that they prefer, let's say, if you're a white wine drinker, Chardonnay to a Pinot Grigio, you know you prefer that. But let's say we were just staying within the Chardonnay family and then I I took 10 different Chardonnays. Didn't, you didn't know even the name of any of the vineyards. Your first place would be, do I enjoy this particular mix or experience? And then I might just say, well, why did you enjoy Chardonnay A versus Chardonnay B? And then you might you know, start to put words against it about oaky or buttery or so mm-hmm. forth. And then you might actually sort of start to recognize the effect that even the aftertaste has or the aroma has on the experience. But this is a process. It's one that, as I go back to it, really starts with attunement. The second, which I've already given you a, a little bit of a, of a teaser on, is what I call interpretation. So it's one thing to be aware of all these different notes that are hitting you, for example, if you're a fragrance developer. And it's another thing to be able to know how you emotionally respond to the different notes. An example would be, you know, if if I put three pieces of material in front of you, swatches, and one was a, a swatch of silk, and one was a swatch of velvet, and one maybe was corduroy, right? They're three very different tactile experiences. Textures. It's one thing to know that maybe the silk feels softer or the velvet feels cozier. If you can start, though, to go even further, what is it about the velvet that gives you that feeling of cozy? That, to me, is interpretation. And that's a process of where you start to connect the dots between 
how you're feeling and what you're sensing. The third step is what I call uh, articulation. So, and that's related to interpretation, but it's actually being able to put words or descriptives to the experience so that other people who maybe don't have those swatches in front of them can start to vicariously feel what you feel. And it's a really, really powerful skill for business because most people, they know what they're feeling, but they aren't in a position to bring other people through the journey. And then the last one is what I call editing. And editing is the one, is is probably the trickiest because that's really where you don't just have awareness of these individual sensations, but how do they, how do all of the concurrent ones come together to sort of form a single experience? The way I would describe editing is, and, and this is, as I said, where people go wrong. If you were having friends over for dinner and you were putting a menu together and you said, these are my 10 favorite ingredients. I love lemon zest. I love vanilla extract. I love leg of lamb. I love apple pie, right? You you would never just take your 10 favorite tastes or food types or ingredients and just put it in a pot. So editing is about how things come together. And hmm. typically a good editor is thinking not so much about the um, individual pieces, but the sort of narration about how they come together. So if you wanted to do the, the, the entire meal around the lamb, then you start to think of not so much what other things do I like, but what works well with that narrator piece. How do I make the lamb and how do I serve it, right? If I were having sushi, I were having pasta or having lamb, maybe my strategy, if I wanted to make a very memorable meal for even utensils could be different. So this is all where you're taking curation to an artistic level. And it's a really important skill. Again, if you want to go more into being able to create an entire business on the back of great aesthetics. It sounds to me it's all about the experience, really. I mean, it's taking everything and you're experiencing not just a dinner party, but the whole, the smells, the flavors, the colors, the table setting, even the wine. I mean, you go back to the sommelier later. I mean, we all know how important whenever you go with a wine and the sommelier will always pair the best wine with whatever meal you're having, right? Yeah. The more that you as an entrepreneur or an executive or a service provider can turn whatever it is you're marketing into an experience, the more profoundly valued and successful it'll be. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about business, you know, you mentioned in your book about the five common business challenges and how they can be addressed through aesthetic strategies, which I thought was really interesting. So what are some of those strategies that businesses can use? So there are a lot, and I go back to this idea because most businesses are selling things that are built on desire and aspiration and enhancement of life, but they're not selling to a basic need base. So let's just take an example of, I don't know, like a Warby Parker facing one of those five classic business challenges, which is I call no room to roam. The world has had a lot of glasses, a lot of choices, whether you were going to the likes of a sunglass head hut or a lens crafter, you know, it really was sort of a commodity business with all, and every designer slaps, you know, their name on the different frames. And Warby was never going to win. If, if there was a group of, of entrepreneurs who got together and said, we just want to come out with a new cool sunglass or, or, or prescription um, eyeglass line, I would say they would have flopped in the first month of launch. The world didn't need another prescription brand. But what they did is really reframe what business they're in. And the entire experience 
in the case of Warby Parker, of going to the site and now in some cases to the stores of buying the brand, of receiving it and even returning it was essentially creating a new business proposition with no competition, right? So that that's one example. And they use that really through a lot of different aesthetic elements, through the design of the website, through the presentation of the frames, through the way it interacts, even the, the voice when you you know, buy one of their products and they are following up on cus- with customer service uh, survey or whatever it is. Everything about it is so distinctly Warby. So I think of that as one example. Mm-hmm. Even trying on the glasses, like you can even do that virtually, go on their website and, and see what you look like. And that, that was, it was a design challenge and they, yeah. they nailed it. Another classic business challenge is what I call the rut of the runner up where if you're, for example, Target, the retailer, you're never going to outdo Walmart, direct competitor, because Walmart is just that much bigger. So if you're just playing a scale game or a speed or a market share, you, you know, it's game over, Walmart won. So Target said, okay, well, we're not going to win just on being the lowest everyday prices, but we can create a personality that gives us differentiation and everything from that bullseye to the way they marketed and even some of their local philanthropic efforts kind of created a relationship with people on the basis of aesthetics and aesthetic representation that gave it a very, very powerful position in the market. We call it Target here in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Of course we do. Uh, sorry, so the point that you want to make? No, aesthetics isn't just about styling. You can't right. sort of put an outside in. It's a representation of a value system and a belief system. And when a company uses aesthetics, but uses it in an inauthentic way, it doesn't work. So just using clever design for clever design's sake doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's about connecting the dots between the culture of the company, the belief system, the history, and what uh, I call the codes and bringing them forward in a way that feel relevant and interesting and credible. So then you would say that Warby Parker and Target have high aesthetic intelligence? To be clear, companies never have aesthetic intelligence. People do. Companies have aesthetic value okay. and aesthetic assets. So for example, the bullseye at Target is an asset. It's an aesthetic asset that they have. The intelligence lies in the people who work for the company, who make the decisions, who protect the brand equities, who modernize them because things that Target was doing 20 years ago wouldn't fly today. So part of the intelligence of an organization and the individuals is taking things forward. Okay. So for if you take a a brand, Apple, so Mm -hmm. would you say then that Steve Jobs has high aesthetic intelligence? Steve Jobs was an aesthetic genius. Okay. Uh, And what's interesting about him as an example is he was a smart guy, but there was no indication that he was off the chart smart. I suspect Bill Gates is a lot like when it comes to IQ. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Smarter. Yeah. And he was a very... I'd say low ranking when it came to emotional intelligence. Everything you've ever read about him, people you, you know who work for him would have attested. He didn't have high self-awareness. He didn't care whether you liked him. He wasn't worried about team dynamics. All the things that Dan Goldman in emotional intelligence would have said are the big differentiators of success. None of that applies to him. But his aesthetic intelligence was off the chart. And why? He wasn't an artist. He wasn't trained in any, you know, sort of craft, but he had such a clear sense of what looked and felt good to him and his ability to articulate it in a way that thousands of other people working in his service could execute on it. That was genius. And in the process, he really reinvented how 
we as a society interact with technology. He used to say, the back of my devices looks better than the front of Microsoft's. And he was right. And by the way, I want to go back to the brilliance of Apple's aesthetic assets and, st and strategies is it isn't just the product design. It isn't just the visual. It's the textures. It's the lighting. It's, you know, the way it's all incorporated. The design. simplicity of everything. The, the simplicity, which isn't so simple to do. Right. Thank you for clearing that up. This episode of Branding Matters is brought to you by Gems for Gems. Gems for Gems is a proactive charity focused on ending the cycle of domestic abuse. They do this by creating viable and sustainable paths forward for survivors. With a concentration on empowerment and economic recovery, Gems for Gems works hand-in-hand -hand with the community to help survivors thrive. What can you do to help? Well, if you have any used jewelry lying around that you no longer wear, and let's be honest, we all have some of that, you can donate it to their jewelry drive. If you have any spare time and you want to find a way to give back, this is a great opportunity and you can join their ambassador program. I personally am a part of this ambassador program because I am all about empowering women and this is a great opportunity to do just that. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute financially, you can become a donor to their incredible scholarship program. Whichever way you decide to help, just know that you are making a huge difference and your contribution is meaningful and greatly appreciated. To learn more about Gems for Gems, you can visit their website at gemsforgems.com. You can also find them on Facebook under Gems for Gems and on Instagram under Gems for Gems Canada. And you can always reach out to me on any social media platform under Branding Badass. And now, back to our show. You talk about a quote I got from your book, another one where it says, great businesses are built on thousands of components, but great brands are built on just a handful of powerful codes. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on that? What are brand codes? So I, I steal that term from the fashion world. So in um, Haute Couture, they talk a lot about uh, codes of the house. And a code of the house historically would be a symbol of a brand or a line that stands on its own, that has value or elicits an emotional reaction, not because of the, the, the response to the product itself, but because of the association with that brand and its heritage. So let's just take Chanel, classic example, which has very strong codes, the double C. So I could be walking down the street, something catches my eye with a double C, even if it had nothing to do with Chanel, and it, I think Chanel. What's interesting about Chanel's is that it wasn't just the codes that they did around the branding and the brand identity, even things like if I see someone wearing a boxy, short-waisted blazer jacket with loose fringe yeah. in a tweedy fabric, typically black and white, even if they bought it in Macy's, I will think that's a Chanel jacket. That material stands for it. The quilted leather that they use on um, their small bags, that is a code. So it's symbols that are often associated with a product, but it can also be associated with a store. Uh, you know, if I see it can be associated with a, a streaming video. If I see an image of an illustrated Neuschwanstein castle with fireworks going over it, I will think Disney, the wonderful world of Disney. Good brands tend to have lots of codes. They tend to evolve and, and deepen over time. And good leaders tend to use those codes in a way that still feels relevant to a modern world. So it doesn't feel archaic. It feels 
like, wow, isn't it cool that they took that Burberry plaid and they were able to put it on a bikini on a Cape Moss and make it somehow like a stodgy old fabric look modern and cool and you know, very Britannia. So that's the brilliance of it's also what you do with the codes that you have. So it's not just the logo, it's really appealing to all the senses. You're talking about smell, taste, yeah. and I mean, visual. I think a good a good set of codes typically are well beyond a visual. I mean, the Nokia ringtone would be another one. That was that was the first time in the history where if I got a phone call, it wasn't just a phone buzzing or a phone ringing but there was music. Jingles and ads can be codes as well. You know, oftentimes with like HBO, you know, there's a sound, there's a sound code that goes in association with different media assets. And you hear it and you instantly associate with that brand. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. So we talked about fashion. You come from a fashion background. I am a fashion lover. Um, So let's talk about fashion and let's talk about specifically COVID because COVID has literally decimated an already struggling retail slash fashion industry. Would you agree? There's no question it has been ruinous to a business and a business model that already was pretty, um, I'd say, tenuous to begin Mm -hmm. with. Too many products, too many stores, selling too much of the same thing that was growing increasingly jaded even before COVID. And then COVID yeah. hit. But uh, if the follow-on question is, is fashion over? No, no that's not my next question. I do <laughs> want to ask about that. How do you think it's changed? Well, the thing about fashion, the very definition of fashion is it's always changing, right? right? And the changes were a little darker because of our radical lifestyle change during COVID. But at the same time, what my experience and my observation of, of mankind, <laughs> I'll be very lofty for a minute, is when you have extreme shifts, that the pendulum usually goes to the extreme opposite on the other end of it. So if you go, for example, and many people have talked and written about this, but the pandemic that we had in the early part of the 20th century, and that kind of opened the way to, in part, in combination with a few other big uh, variables, but opened the way to the roaring 20s. And, you know, because we as a society have been so constrained for the last 18 months and living with a certain fear, fear of the other, fear of mortality, you know, fear of economic vulnerability, all the, the issues that that COVID has, has aroused. And because we've also lived a much simpler life than we're used to, I think there's so much pent up in demand for people on the other end of this to go out, to celebrate, to start decorating themselves and the world around them more fiercely and more boldly. I think we're going to step into a very colorful phase. And anyone who didn't invest in athleisure two years ago, I would say you'd be catching a falling knife to do so now. I don't think we're going to go back we as women are going to go back to the days where we'll necessarily put on five inch Louboutin heels and feel okay about that. You know, comfort shouldn't be that sacrifice. Oh, for sure. You know, it's funny you say that every season, normally fall and spring, I put away all my winter clothes and get out all my spring clothes. So I recently did that and got all my summer clothes out and all my sandals. And so I have all this, my closet, and I was full of these high heels and I'm looking at them and I just cannot wait to wear them again because I've been literally wearing flip-flops for the last 18 months. So I, I'm excited about that. And I can't, yeah, no, definitely. So, but what about retail with the uh, pandemic? And again, like you said, even before that, more and more people have been shopping online. I mean, Amazon is can attest to that. And people have been buying everything, shoes, clothing, you, you can get anything online. So how has the retail industry specifically been affected? And how do you think that's changed? 
Well, so I think there's a real bifurcation between good retail and regular retail. Most retailers will continue to struggle in large part because the way they're approaching retail is so easily supplanted by Amazon and other online propositions. If you don't make your physical store something that people genuinely want to go into and leave with a smile on their face and a sense that they got something from the experience that they couldn't have gotten with a click of the finger, then you really have nothing to hang your hat on going forward. But there is a lot of things you can do in a physical space that the likes of Amazon can never do. Number one, real service. And I'm not talking about just having someone stocking shelves, but I'm talking about (laughs) having somebody who recognizes you when you come in, who can anticipate your needs, and who might even be able to present you with things you'd never think of yourself, that element of surprise and delight that really comes with human judgment. That doesn't come through algorithms. It doesn't come... I mean, nobody goes to Amazon to sort of browse, right? Typically, you go there with you know, it's a destination and fills your needs and it comes very efficiently. And all the things that Amazon does well are the the antithesis of what makes a treasure hunt fund, right? And I think good good retailers, it's not just going to be about, are they staffing with the right people or the people with the right mindset? Are they selling the right things and things that actually are meaningful? Are they giving you an opportunity to discover? But are they actually also creating a stage? A little bit like when I think of Broadway. Broadway didn't go away when Hollywood came, you know, it was in its golden era. But what I expect when I go to the theater is a different experience than when I go to watch a movie or to watch TV. They're all content. But what I'll pay for good theater, you know, Hamilton, I've, you know, you pay thousands of dollars for great theater. And I'm hard pressed to these days, you know, pay $16 a month for Netflix if the content's not good. So my point is that the human experience, I think retailers have to really treat their their spaces with with the mindset of, of a theatrical producer, you know, and they have to be able to create something that takes fully advantage of the 3D space, inspires you not just by what it sells, by how it's selling it. For those companies where the art and the and the storytelling come back into the store, I think they'll be just fine. You know, I love that you said that back to about the human experience, because it's true. I mean, you go online and you can buy really anything, but to walk into a place and have the whole experience again from trying things on, I mean, depending on where you go, but how the, what the customer service is like when you walk in and they know your name and you just, the whole thing about being there, even down to the packaging of when you get your clothing and how it's all, you know, packaged up and given to you and you walk out of there and you feel good. Like you just had a a really fun experience. I agree with you. I don't think retail is ever going to go away. People who are in retail and who have these brick and mortar stores are going to have to up their game, I think. Otherwise they're going to end up like Toys R Us and all the other ones that have just, where you can just go online and get the exact same thing. That's right. That's right. They're not, they can't think of themselves as as in the product business, mm-hmm. you know, have to be in the experience business. Mm-hmm. I think you're always going to need that human connection. <laughs> um, very much so. So let's talk about what's happening with you today. You recently launched a series of masterclasses for an online learning platform. So congratulations. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you. So this is one of the most fun initiatives I've taken on in recent memory, maybe even in not so recent memory. <laughs> I, you know, as you know, I wrote, wrote a book, came out a year ago, and I was teaching at the same time. I taught for two years, first at Harvard Business School, and then more recently at Columbia Business School. 
And I like those pursuits, but my frustration with the book, with writing it as well as to this day, you know, talking about elements of the book is that it's still stuck in a moment in time. Books, you know, have a sense of permanence, but they don't evolve with, you know, I wrote it well before COVID and not to say I think any differently about my thesis, but I would have loved to include a chapter and how that's evolving and how that's affecting our aesthetic sensibilities. So that was my frustration there. My frustration with teaching is as much as I enjoy being up in front of next generation thinkers, I can only do it with 50 to 100 at a time. And so, you know, it's it's a lot of work for a small number of people. And I kept saying, how can I take the concepts, keep evolving it, but reach a lot more people, scale the concept of aesthetic intelligence? And it was on that that I was also observing this proliferation of online learning platforms, the fact that more and more people are looking to digital education as ways to better themselves, their prospects, their skills. And so I spent about a year in partnership with with a woman who has a background in online education. We put together a platform. It's brand new. The class is self-paced and it's an introductory class to aesthetic intelligence. But we recommend that you prepare about 90 days to go through the entire course. It does have a series of short masterclasses. It has, with each masterclass, exercises. And then it also has a community component so you can work and and share some of your responses and your submissions and your insights with other students or learners. And then the last point I'll make, which is fun for me, because it does give me a live interaction, is twice a month I do events for all people who have signed up. One is a tastemaker interview where I take a prominent person who uh, has what I call very, very developed aesthetic intelligence and interview them live, but of course via Zoom. And the second is uh, once a month, I do special sessions so I can interact with the learners directly. It's it's brand new. It's never been done before in this area of thought. And certainly aesthetic intelligence is not just a new concept, but it's very new for business. So I always want to bring it back to how can you use this in your career and in your company? I love it. And for people who are interested, you can either sign up at aestheticintelligence.com and information will be sent or the uh, site for the actual program itself is Aesthetic Intelligence Labs. And so who is the course for? Like, who would you recommend? This is a foundation course. And so I wanted to make it as broad-based as possible. Uh, So I think there are things of relevance to everyone from entrepreneurs who just want to understand what is this concept of the other AI and how can I work on it and have a taste of the process to executives. In fact, I have a few inquiries from big companies that want to create custom programs out of the platform for their particular industry. One is a big hotel chain, the other is automotive. And the way I would teach for industry-specific issues would be more customized. And I would say everything in between. I mean, I've had medical professionals who say, how can I bring a little bit of this thought process into the healthcare profession? I really designed it so that at least for the introductory course, there's no one who wouldn't find it to have some applications for them in their life and hopefully in in their work as well. Well, that sounds great. Very exciting. And so it's called Aesthetic Intelligence Lab. Yes, labs. Okay, labs. Okay, great. Okay, great. Well, before you go, Pauline, I know you have to head out here soon. I mean, you're a successful businesswoman. You taught at Harvard. You're also a mom. You have two daughters. Is that correct? I have actually one daughter, one son. Yeah, so my son is in college um, and my daughter is just wrapping up high school, a little younger. 
So you're a busy woman and you always have been. And uh, and and you're a single mom as well? I'm a Is single that... mom. Yep. Okay. I'm a single so, mom. Well, me too. So I I, <laughs> I look I look up to you and I admire you and I have so much respect, especially for single moms, because it's tough out there. And it's you have tough. so it is. And so, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. I'll give you a virtual pat and a <laughs> high five and a high five. So knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time to 18-year-old Pauline, mm. what would be one piece of advice that you would give yourself? I should have graduated into this world where everyone around me, we had professional identity and we had personal identity. And they really were incredibly divorced, the two sides of who we are. As an analogy, like when I think about my closet, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I had my work clothes, my workwear, you know, which were suits and things that were deemed professional. And I had maybe my weekend wear or my date wear or whatever it was. And I don't live that way anymore. I think it is very hard to have that kind of separation. And so the more over time in my case, and I wish it had happened earlier, that I could bring together who I was uniquely when I wasn't working into my work and to sort of integrate the various selves, I think not only would it have taken away some of the strain of being um, sort of eventually a working mom and and all the other challenges, but I also think it would have just brought more joy and more fun into both spheres. And then the second thing I would say is um, a lot of young people, and, and I would say this was true of me, I think it's even more true of young people today, they're in such a rush to arrive wherever, whatever that means to arrive. And I would <laughs> feel like, like life happened in between making those plans. And um, I think uh, I would have early on recognized that there was sort of arguably more value in things that I was doing, not because I thought they had value, but because I thought they were just purely interesting or enriching or fun and allow for things to happen organically because that's generally where the way the best things happen anyway. Eventually, I feel looking back that I kind of arrived at those insights. I wish I would have arrived there sooner. I think it would have taken away some of the strain earlier in mm-hmm. my, my adult life. That's great advice. I think we can all look back and say sort of similar things in that respect. Well, thank you again for taking the time to be here today. It's been such a pleasure. And um, I look forward to seeing you again soon, hopefully, when everything gets back to normal. Thank you for reaching out um, and for, you know, sharing your enthusiasm and the concepts. You're very, very good interviewer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Well, you're easy to interview. I love what you have to say. And I didn't mean what I said, by the way. I do think that, you know, single mom, I know how challenging it is. And you've done incredible things with your professional life. So that just is an extra kudos to you. You too. So, well, yeah. working on it, doing the best we can, right? Got to okay. be a badass. <laughs> All right, I'll let you go. I'll talk okay. to you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. And there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I really hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the branding badass, that's me, you can find me on social media under, you know it, branding badass. Thanks again, and until next time, Here's to all you badasses out there.